Verhoeven, huh? What about him? Anybody gives a fuck about Paul Verhoeven? I give a fuck about Paul Verhoeven. Oh, are you looking at my my search history? I'm in your Facebook. Now. Oh my god. You you don't like storm, uh, uh, Starship Troopers? I forgot he did that. What did you forget he did Total Recall? Robocop. Did you forget he did Robocop? Did you forget he did Basic Instinct? It's not a great film. Basic you... Instinct. <laughs> Bill Hicks with a great line about Basic Instinct. He's like, I saw that goddamn movie. Everybody was t- protesting it. He's like, if it were me, I the only thing I protested was that there was no not enough uh, Sharon Stone. I'd be the one guy protesting that movie if I were running it. it would be uh, Michael Douglas wanting his part back. Right. Um, Paul Verhoeven. Also, Showgirls. Let's not forget Showgirls. He did Showgirls too. Hollow Man. Here's the thing about. Here's the thing about. Uh, Hollow Man's a recent uh, film. Mike, Mike, Mike. Here's Mike, the thing Mike, about Mike, Paul Mike, Verhoeven. I don't have a mic. I don't have a mic. Uh, you do. Let me know mic. when you hear yourself. Oh, okay, I'm getting. In the, I'm getting in there a little bit. Let me know when you don't hear yourself. Do you hear yourself? I now? don't hear myself. Do you I hear, hear myself now? Okay. So I now hear we're... myself now. Okay. Um, no, Paul Verhoeven. You're loud, man. Is uh. Is the absolute shit. Um, that's incorrect. I'm sorry. I mean, Basic Instinct. Can you okay. think of a single other film that anticipated the okay, post 9 so 11 world better 90s, than Starship Troopers? Starship Troopers is a good movie. Can you can you 90s, think about think about Starship you're Troopers? You're loud. Just turn yourself down a little bit. Well, I may I might be loud in your headphones. You're loud in my like, headphones. Okay, right, have one now. Yeah, that's yeah, better. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's groovy now. <laughs> no, so like from 1990, he's got Total Recall, obviously the greatest movie ever made. But uh, before 1990, he had Robocop in 1987. He did, yeah, he did. Robocop, I mean, I don't know, it's okay. It's not that amazing. Uh, Total Recall. Yeah, until a Robocop kills you, and then you realize I should have listened to Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Total Recall, Basic Instinct, no. Showgirls, no. Starship Troopers, yes. Hollow Man, never saw it, not interested, and the rest of it is bullshit. Turkish Delight's supposed to be a good movie. <sighs> what happened on September 11th, 9-11? Or September sure. 11th, 2001? I was too busy. Um, Some people got attacked, right? Heaving. And, and and then what ended up happening after that? Um, um, I think there was a lot of candy canes. Christian Bale and George W. Bush got together and they decided they were going to rewrite American foreign policy. And it was the foundation for... Uh, Nazis, Walter? Nazis, Walter. <laughs> and, and this is a new microphone. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about this. Yeah, holding the mic is different than leaning into the mic. Which no, I but look at, do, look at, but look at what's going on here. This one has bungee cords. What is happening with that? That's kind I don't of an know. old school 40s style mic. Can you hear me like... Yeah, I can hear you rustling. Yeah, I don't. I'm like that. I don't like the rustling. Maybe if I take this, this, this off, I won't rustle so much. How about that? Um, that's oh, a little that nicer. sounds so much fucking that's better. Soother, yeah. It's oh my god, I can put all of my pretentious clothes back on. Please, <laughs> please, please put all your pretentious clothes back on. Oh, uh, there's just so much rustling. The rustling's yeah. I mean, it's better to not have rustling. I think. Let's get back to what we were talking about, though. Let's Paul Verhoeven. Paul Verhoeven. Do you have a problem with Paul Verhoeven? I kind of do, though. What's your problem with Paul Verhoeven? He, like, in the 90s, there was this weird tendency. This is a little bit before your time. In the 90s, there was a... I came of age in the 90s, just so everybody you knows. You were pooping your pants in the 90s. At, at the same time as I came <laughs> of age. <laughs> I mean. Persuade to coming of age. <laughs> I was pooping in the pants. 
But there was this weird anxiety in the 90s about women in the workplace, not just in the fact that they're like having jobs, but that they're kind of a sexual temptation for the average office worker. Like 90s films had this kind of softcore fake wokeness that I find really weird. So, for example, um, movies like Disclosure or Indecent Proposal or Indeed Basic Instinct, the remake of Diabolique. All these movies were very kind of pretending to have body of evidence. And it was basically like opportunities for hot actresses to like slink around in their office clothes and seduce their like unfeeling corporate bosses or have sex with their corporate bosses. There was definitely an element of um, representing third wave feminist archetypes Mm -hmm. to represent female power through sexuality. Yeah. Which was probably equally as sexist based on what we know of what the industry is like. Totally. Totally. And also shot sexistly. Yeah. Like, I mean, Body of Evidence was supposed to be a thriller that was, like, provocative and edgy. Basic Instinct was supposed to be incredibly provocative and edgy. Sharon Stone spreads her legs. Oh, my God. And it's like, no, these are basically softcore porn movies. It's basically what they are. The, the topicality is a fig leaf. <laughs> Pun well, okay. intended. Okay, so let's, let's, let's bring it back to, to uh, Starship Troopers, then, which is, which is possibly one of the greatest films of the 1990s. And uh, when I was in... Actually, that's not important. I did. Get to, I did. I was told by a security guard at Trinity College Dublin yep. in, in the year two thousand twelve. Yes, you were. I was present for this. No, you weren't. Well, you were. You were in the area, but you weren't there when he said <laughs> Starship Troopers is one of the most underrated films of all time. I might have been there for that. No, no, no. I was standing in the in the security booth by myself with these two dudes, and one of them was like, "I'm so fucking bored. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna watch Starship Troopers." So he found a an illegal link. Uh-huh. This is like seven years ago in internet time, so it was fucking years ago. Yep. I mean, eons ago yep. in internet time. And he said, Starship Troopers is one of the most underrated films of all time. And I didn't believe him at the time, but then I was watching it, and I realized what what was going on here was that this was a critique of American fascism or yep. a, a, a future potential American fascism. And one of the most important scenes of the film, though, that, you know, for, that when you watch it the first time is when everybody's naked in the shower uh-huh. and everybody realizes that, oh, shit, Everybody's hot and sexy and naked, but what they're not realizing, the people in the film that is, is that everybody's hot and naked and sexy. Uh-huh. That's only for us to realize. Yep. They have gone beyond gender, and they're also beyond race, too. You've got Latinos, you've got Hispanic, uh, you've got uh, uh, black people, you've got women, you've got men, and everybody is not does not give a shit about gender differences, race differences, all that kind of stuff. So you've gone beyond race, you've gone beyond gender, and yet you still have a fascist society. Like, that's that's very, very, very far-seeing, huh. you know, to use the German version for television. <laughs> for, far-seeing? For, yeah. What, the, that's what television means? If you were to literally translate what a television is in the German, it would be a far-seer. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you were going to take the Latin version of, of it and make it German, it'd be far-seer. Mm-hmm. But, um... Like that's that's pretty impressive for a film in 1997 that could easily that that did get a bunch of shit thrown on it for being just a stupid action, violent, mindless, nudity filled uh, 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 blockbuster. Mm-hmm. So Paul Verhoeven sacrificed a lot, I think, as a filmmaker to 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 risk being seen as a piece of shit filmmaker in order to make a film that preempted the ideology of the United States post 9/11. I have it. I'm going to rewatch it. 
I'm. I, these are not original ideas, by the way. There are plenty of people out there who have said all this shit before me. Yeah. No, yeah. I've heard that stuff before. Nate, you're not that cool. No, of course not. No, <laughs> everybody that listens to this program, all six of you, know that I'm not uh, that cool. <laughs> no, everybody, everybody's aware of that. <laughs> you don't have to convince anybody. <laughs> so, uh, what else is happening this week? So, Mary Oliver has recently deceased after a long year, after a long career. She was in her 80s. And um, I like Mary Oliver a lot. And I think it's nice that we point this out because Yard's Fuse is very deeply invested in the local. We really care about our Boston writers and our Boston artists. Yeah, she's she's from New England uh, by way of Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yep, lived in Provincetown for a really long time, spent a lot of time in Vermont. And in some ways kind of carries on the Robert Frost tradition, I think, of talking about New England uh, landscapes, New England weather, and New England concerns. There's a transcendentalist quality to a lot of what she's writing. For those of you that don't know, you we have four seasons here. One is uh, kind of cold. Right. One is kind of hot. Right. One is really hot. Yep. And then the other one is we were just complaining. Is suicide. Yeah. <laughs> is despair. <laughs> right. Right. There's like, there's, the calendar says there's four seasons. Everybody knows winter goes everywhere from like September to maybe late March. But one of them is just complaining about why the weather is not some other version of the weather. Yeah. And um, and it, with the weather in, in Massachusetts is basically a punishment. Like, I'm pretty convinced that, like, the reason why we had so many Puritans and so much, like, apocalyptic philosophy and, you know, uh, witch trials and all that kind of stuff was basically because people were f- either freezing their asses off or sweating their asses off. It, there's no middle ground. We're schizophrenic because of the weather. And And... Thanks to us, you guys got an entire uh, uh, country of repressed feelings. Yes. So absolutely, <laughs> so and we spread that germ yeah. to the rest of the of the new world. You're welcome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we we await your thank you letters in the mail that only we send. But Mary Oliver um, really has, and one thing I really liked about Mary Oliver is that um, I like complex poetry. I like obscure poetry. I like elusive poetry. Um, and Mary Oliver managed to be all those things while also being fairly clearly spoken and fairly accessible and um, not to sacrifice any complexity, but to be somebody that the average reader could just pick up and start thinking about. No, you'd read a Mary Oliver poem and you'd realize that what you're doing is, is is grappling with the feelings of a real human being. Yeah. And you, often, you know, accompanied by a uh, the particularities of a, of a place. And right. uh, she, she had... Um, uh, a romantic life that wasn't always accepted for by you know everybody yep. at the same time as well. She had a partner for like forty odd years or whatever it is. Right. It was a that was a woman. She was a woman, and so that was a risk that I think poets took. She didn't even fucking graduate college, you know. Yeah. So she's a, she's a she's overcome some odds definitely, and was definitely like a really well regarded poet. You were saying earlier she was one of the best selling poets in America, which has well, a nice see, value to it. I, I, I don't I don't necessarily think that's a good thing. So like when you go to a Wikipedia page, which a lot of people I'm sure did when when they found out that she was dead, uh, the the first two sentences on a Wikipedia page say the New York Times regarded her as one of quote America's best selling poets. Yeah, and like to me that's kind of a weird thing. To, you shouldn't lead a Wikipedia page with that. You know, and 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 I think there's a lot more in Mary Oliver's life than being popular. Best-selling. Or best selling, you know, it's it's it's, and and I don't even know what the fuck metric they were using at the time when they wrote that, but it's it's a weird thing to say, you know. But at the same time, not everything that's popular is bad, and 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 so maybe we should read some Mary Oliver. 
yeah there's a poem of hers i really like my my friend less my dear friend less if you're out there listening thank you for always putting this at the end of your emails uh, a quote from this poem by her that i've thought about a lot and that i really enjoy um the the and the last lines are what i know the best the rest of the poem i ha- uh, don't know as well but i thought it'd be good to read this in tribute to her it's called the summer day who made the world who made the swan and the black bear who made the grasshopper this grasshopper i mean the one who has flung herself out of the grass the one who is eating sugar out of my hand who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face now she snaps her wings open and floats away i don't know exactly what a prayer is I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's those last lines that always kind of get me. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche to to say life is something mm-hmm. and we better fucking respect it or, or do something about it while we're while we're here. But at the same time, it's 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 often the case where we forget that we do have limited time. We get caught up with work or with life or with social concerns or politics or whatever it is. And so for Mary the Oliver, who I, I don't know if she's necessarily like a religious poet or whatever, but this is a this is very much a uh, a, a religious poem in the sense where spiritual, yeah, spiritual. I guess if we want to use the word, I don't know what a prayer is, but I, I know how to how to look at something, how to focus, how to how to concentrate, and uh, I think that's what a what a good poem often does. We've lost a lot of that sense of paying attention, of paying respect to things by paying attention to them. She was influenced a lot by uh, Whitman too, right? Mm-hmm. And so Whitman always found the wonder in, in, in the ordinary. There's a quote that she has here that I've just uh, summoned. She says, To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. Which is, uh, I think, very wise and, and very very um, sweet and powerful. I mean, there's there's something about that sentiment that I think our culture kind of denies and, and ignores and, and doesn't want to talk about. Because it's that sense of, like, you know, everything has to be now, now, now. Everything has to be mine, mine, mine. Everything has to be about me personally, what my needs are, what my wants are, m- me being recognized. And I think that her discussion and her attention to the paying attention to the transience of life is a really great way for us to kind of take a step back and to sort of see the bigger picture. And I think that's a really fabulous thing for us to have right now. And I think it's, it's a shame that we've now have to deal with the passing of, of, of Mary Oliver, right? That we have to be in the absence of somebody who is able to do that. 
I like well when you Google Mary Oliver right now, the three tweets that come up are from Hillary Clinton, Ava DuVarnay, and Madonna. Who's Ava DuVernay? I don't know who Ava DuVernay is. Yeah, some famous person. Yeah, she said it doesn't have, oh, she quotes, it doesn't have to be blue iris. It can be weeds in a vacant lot. Just pay attention, then patch a few words together, and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks. A silence in which another voice may speak. It's Mary Oliver from uh, Prank. Very nice. Yeah, I was like, that wasn't tweeted by Madonna. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, like, I mean, like, I mean, M- Madonna is just as good a poet as Mary <laughs> Life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. I hear you call my name, and it feels like... That brings us to something that Matt you wrote recently uh, for the Arts Views about uh, William uh, Giraldi's uh, memoir, collection of essays. Yeah, literary criticism of literary criticism and literary essays. Yeah. The audacity of hope. <laughs> 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 no, actually, uh, funnily enough, that's refer. It's the title. The true title is American Audacity. Oh, I'm sorry, American Audacity. Yes, yes. American okay. Audacity in defense of literary daring. He says, and um, I really love this book. I I got a lot out of it. I read a lot. I read it, the whole thing multiple times. Some of the uh, specific chapters multiple times over that. And um, looks like we got ourselves a reader. Yes, yes, indeed, um, incorrigibly so. And um, so a few points I wanted to make about this. I, I I love the way that Giraldi writes. I love the the similes, the metaphors, the sentences, just sentence after sentence. They're smooth and compelling and vivid and poetic and have a real heft and and i really get a lot out of reading him just paragraph by paragraph basis and i start talking about sort of how literary critics don't always make good novelists or good fiction writers because um edmund wilson who i really love and was an amazing critic didn't really write very good fiction i i got through a couple of his books and i was like memoirs of hecate county is really kind of like the only one that people give a shit about right? yeah and it's pretty drab yeah and but the histories that he writes are vivid and and totally mind blowing. Yeah, real life was was way more of a good well for him to 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 go to. Yeah. Than than making it up on his own. Right. And his 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 um his his profiles on different writers and taking things up on different writers are just immortal. He does beautiful things with Patriot uh, Gore and to the Finland station. You 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 mentioned Patriotic Gore. Yeah. Patriotic Gore. Sorry. Yeah, they're powerful and they're amazing. And they're not even strictly history. It's more just kind of like a like a it's narrative, narrative history. history. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a story that unfolds. So with Giraldi, I think I have not read his fiction, but his literary criticism feels like it's written by somebody who is um, a true uh, fiction writer. 
Who does he focus on in this uh, collection of essays? He writes about a lot of people. He talks about um, some critics that he really likes. He likes Stanley Fish. He writes about uh, James Baldwin. Stanley Fish, for everybody that doesn't remember, there it's he's that guy that wrote that essay that you were supposed to read in uh, English 101. Right. About, is there a text in this class? Mm-hmm. And then it blew your mind, and then you forgot entirely about it. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. And um, uh, Harold Bloom, who I've I've been a fan of for a long time. He's a lightweight. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Brontosaurus, Bartolator, Broom, uh, Bloom, uh, James Wolcott, and then that's just that's those are just more like the critic thinkers. He also writes about Cormac McCarthy. He writes about Harper Lee. He writes about um, uh, lots of poets, uh, Flannery O'Connor, drunk Catholics. Yes, tons of <laughs> drunk Catholics. He has an essay actually about being Catholic, and and not necessarily a drunk Catholic, but a Catholic nonetheless. Uh, Melville, um, Alan Gerganis, who I didn't know anything about. Who he, there's a long uh, profile of Alan Gerganis that he does, where he goes to hang out with him in his um, kind of storied southern small town and the porch he stayed on for 30 years, sipping whiskey and contemplating the folly of the human condition. And it's great. I mean, I was really struck by it. I read it multiple times. It was very, really fascinating, just as a person. And I love literary essays in a lot of ways because it gives you the feeling of having read the book without actually having to do the reading which is lots of fun. And Giraldi's really absorbed and um, taken in these texts. And, and so it's not like a cheater's guide. It's just, it's more like you get the sense of having experienced what it's like to hang out with somebody or what it's like to have been in the mind of Herman Melville or um, uh, Nadine Gordon, Gordimer that really makes you feel like you're learning something. Uh, he teaches at BU. He's got a teacher's uh, experience and also a fiction writer's experience and he's also not afraid to completely disembowel really bad writing and he does that with uh, Fifty Shades of Grey he does that with not Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird but To Go Set a Watchman which was the sort of cash grab first draft of Mockingbird that was kind of uh, opportunistically yanked from her uh, archives and then published as if it were some kind of new revelation and is really kind of a disgrace. Um, he also takes uh, Cormac McCarthy's novel Child of God to task. Uh, Norman Potteretz's famous memoir Making It, which is basically about how amazing Norman Potteretz is and the world's singular failure to appreciate the amazingness of Norman Potteretz. Is that the father of the guy, uh, is it Neil Podoretz? Oh, who, who writes for the uh, Washington Post? Or the There's Times? a one of I think it's a son of his that yeah, yeah yeah that's the only reason why that guy is famous. And this book, making it, he wrote a review of it for the Baffler, and he just totally just painstakingly takes it apart. So he's not just somebody rubber stamp stuff. He's also somebody who, um, really wittily and thoughtfully and um, honestly, um, shoots down bad writing. And so what does he say bad writing is? What does what 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 does bad writing accomplish? Cliche or fail fail to accomplish? Cliche. Well, I've already used like seven of those. Yeah, Yeah. right. But you're not writing. Uh, That's true. This conversation. I'm talking. Somebody could make a transcript of this, though. Right. And those would be my words and I have to stand by them. What are you going to do? I'm I'm just going to deny it up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to deny it up and down. I'm just going to deny it 100 (laughs) percent. These are lies and slander and balderdash and I will not stand with it. Stand for it. Up with this, I will not put. Um, yeah, I mean, well, like cliche, he makes an interesting point about style. He says that if you if a, if a writer's aesthetics are not moral, if they do not comprehend that style is inextricable from morality, 
then they're just goofing off on the way to being forgotten. All right, this causes a lot of problems for a lot of people. I imagine. Mm-hmm. What the fuck is a moral style? What is a what is a moral aesthetic? It's not that the style is moral. It's that the the style is inextricable from morality. An insistence that you have a dedication to a good style yes. is in itself a moral imperative. A moral choice, yeah. yes. Okay. And exactly. So if I don't understand what I'm trying to say, then the way and the I'm way trying, you're trying to say it, yeah, is not. If I can't find uh, a way of saying something that tells you more about what I'm trying to say, then I'm just goofing off on the way to oblivion. All right. So what's a uh, so what? I want to say X. The way I say it is Y, and if I don't pay attention to the way I'm saying X, then I'm not doing the work. I so, so what are, what are what are some of his prime examples of this shit? Well, um, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. He makes a point about that, like that there's that it's there's no style, there's no original thinking, there's no attention being paid to the topic, um, and it's that sense of like you're just titillating the reader. There's nothing wrong with writing about sex. There's nothing wrong with writing about exotic sex. But this is this makes sex boring. This makes exotic sex boring because there's no style, because there's no thinking, because it's all cliche after cliche after cliche. Um, does in, he does he does he use the word pornographic? Not even so much that. It's it's more that it's like this is, um, this is not written with much care, and the attentiveness that we were just talking about. That's what kind of like sparked my, um, my thinking about talking about this essay, which came out recently. Uh, in the arts views, which is a sense of like you're not really paying attention to what you're writing about. You're not thinking through, you know, you're not looking at a body. You're not looking into a moment. You're not looking into the way characters talk to each other. Um, you're looking at like, and then he took her roughly and he slapped her on the behind. Oh, who cares? Right. Bodice ripper. Exactly. And there's nothing. And again, I don't think Geraldi would say he's no Puritan. He's not saying that writing about sex is immoral. But if you write about it in mechanical, cliche ridden disembodied way then yeah you're you're really you're really screwing up um he also talks about cormac mccarthy's novel child of god which i have not read Uh, some people i know said it was really good um but he makes the point that like this book is so over the top in its morbidity and in its just non-stop assault of like implausible psychosis after implausible psychosis when did uh when did child of god come out 80s i think yeah, and so he's not he doesn't he doesn't completely knock Cormac McCarthy 100%, but he makes the point that it's like this book is so wrapped up in its own kind of ostentatious misery that it's it's horrible to read. And, and he wouldn't make the same claim for a book like um The Road. I don't know what he says about I don't remember what he says about The Road specifically. I don't think he was super into The Road. Um Blood Meridian, he definitely was kind of in awe of It's part of a trilogy though as well, right? The, the road isn't, but there is no, no, no. Blood Meridian is. It's not. No, there's a different trilogy. It's um, all the pretty horses, Sutri, and Cities in the Plain, and something else. It's a later trilogy, I think, in the early nineties. Nah, yeah. yeah, shows what I know. Yeah, and so, but it's just that sense of like not paying attention, not having style, not having imagination, and kind of making the act of reading less enriching and less powerful than it really should be. Um, and he says it, he says a couple times, he says, literature like love is what makes life worth living and that literature is the one religion worth having. And, you know, I feel like when you can't, what makes literature that valuable and makes literature that powerful is the fact that someone paid attention to what they said and they really put their time into trying to figure out what they needed to say and what they, um, 
what they what aesthetics they needed to use to say that thing and writing that doesn't do that is you know forgettable there's there's a quote he says where he kind of illustrates what he means about it and he says one must write into the language as a bird takes off into flight discovering itself in the act of its own soaring the daring ones are always helpless to do otherwise so it's writing into the language and I like I love the image of the as a bird takes off into flight, discovering itself in the act of its own soaring. So as you're writing and as you're um, taking off into the page, you're writing into the language. You're not writing away from the language. You're not saying, okay, like he walked into the room and she was standing there and he hit her on the butt and she went, oh my goodness. You're writing into the language. What are the words that right. you would use to describe that? Y- y- it's hard to be defensive when you're writing, and this this goes back to. Uh, the um the interview you did with with James Wood where he talks about having the kind of the audacity yeah to sit down and write something yeah if you don't have you know some level of courage and and and, and belief then all your shit's just going to fall flat mm-hmm. and i think that's really hard to come by for writers and so what it sounds like Geraldi is doing is he's 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 being antagonistic towards this idea that that writing is something sterile yes he's he's that talk- literature that, that, that real literature quality yeah, is, is yeah. sterile and that it, it requires a lot of risk and when you write into the language you you have to invent new ways to get around it so much as in, in a similar way that you're, you're sailing into the wind or something like that if you can't figure out a way to to, to navigate something that is working against you by its own limitations or by its own logic that you reject or something like that, then you're, you're ultimately just going to capsize and you're going to end up with 50 shades of gray or whatever. Yeah. You're writing, you're writing forgettable stuff that will be easily forgotten. Um, that's makes a lot of money, but <laughs> right, right. But that's, that's obviously, yeah, no indicator of quality. Um, and it's also that sense of like, you know, I don't think that just because you shock the reader or because you, pile a whole bunch on to the reader you are doing good literature it's that sense of like you are really investing this story with all the details and all of the the knowledge and all of the uh spiritual longing that you can so i mean for me like the novels that i'm always drawn to and that blew my mind and continue to blow my mind i say this in the review um I think the reasons, this is, what I, this is me talking, one of the reasons why Ulysses and The Sound and the Fury are so perpetually riveting to me, and I'm saying this to me as myself, Matt Hansen, is how the narratives are so immersed in these characters' very complex and ever-changing inner lives to the extent that they almost feel more real, more viscerally, viscerally present than real life. And he says, you know, one of the things about literature is that it gives you access into the inner cosmos of another person, the psycho-emotional systems of people wholly different from you. And that's Geraldi speaking. That's Geraldi, yeah. Yeah, and so it's that sense that like I have access to the interiority of this character, and just I, I just take two examples where they really give you a lot of interiority, like Ulysses and Sound of the Fury. It's like I'm really living in Leopold Bloom's mind when I read this book, and I love it. I'm so fascinated by those little things he notices, things he thinks about, memories that he has, things he's curious about as he putters through his day. The Sound and the Fury, I mean, these are challenging books, but they're challenging because there's a style and there's a morality to that style that says, look, I need to give you a glimpse of something you may never have seen before. And that means I need to write it differently than if I just said, Leopold Bloom walked down the street, he got a sandwich, he left. Does Giraldi say that um, 
these kinds of modernist texts that you're referencing here, Ulysses, Sound of the Fury, that they, in their intention to represent interiority or subjectivity, were a high point, a high point, or a significant achievement, or, I mean. Can, is that possible in straightforward narrative too? You know, because I think you would say it is. I yeah. mean, I don't say Ulysses and the Sound of the Fury because I don't want to put words in Geraldi's mouth. Like, for all I know, he doesn't like those books or hasn't read them. I don't know. But those are my examples of where he's I probably see. read them. I'm sure he's probably read them. <laughs> but I don't want to make assumptions and start speaking on his behalf. But I mean, those are books for me that show yeah. what he's talking, that demonstrate what he's talking about. So, so to me, not them specifically, but straight ahead narrative can totally do that. To me, this is always this always comes back to something that literature can do that I think is is very very difficult for other art forms to do, and when it's accomplished, it it makes it all that more impactful. And what I'm talking about here is mimesis, mm-hmm. and so for me, mimesis is is the creation of a world that didn't exist before, and only exists in the fact that it's written down in language, mm-hmm. which which to me is is still very much. Um, an abstract form of representation. Mm-hmm. And so when you're able to create something that has a materiality that can then be reflected back towards your own actual existence through a pure abstraction, pure representation, you know, language is not, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't embody anything other than the words that it, that it, that it, that it signifies. Mm-hmm. When you're able to do that through, through mimesis, which is, some sort of accurate representation of real life, whether or not that's through, and 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 I think it it often doesn't happen through realism. I think it happens through uh, uh, other more experimental forms of fiction, such as Ulysses or uh, uh, you know Faulkner or Mrs. Dalloway or something like that. And for that very reason, it it, it allows literature literature I think to challenge other forms of art that most you know aestheticians mm-hmm. or or philosophers of art. Uh, would 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 actually you know dock literature points for its failure to accurately represent things, mm-hmm. and so I don't necessarily want to say that it's because of a feeling that is induced because of words and what they do, so much as I think that with or without the subjective interaction with language, by writing something down, by creating an actual fake moment in history that reflects back onto our real existence, we are able to uh, achieve something that no other literary form or no no other art form I should say sorry is able to do whether it's mm-hmm. cinema or it's music mm-hmm. or it's poetry even you know I think I think literature you know the the, the novel form whatever the fuck that might be th- these days uh is 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 beyond compare mm-hmm. that's definitely what Giraldi thinks and for me I actually said this in the, in the review as well is that like he says literature is the most exalted art form, art form for exactly the reasons you just gave. Okay, and I happen to actually disagree with it. I think that, um, I think literature can do something that other art forms can't really do. But for me personally, I think music is the uh, is the 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 greatest of the arts. See, I think cinema is okay, and I only say that because I don't think literature has lived up to what it actually possibly should be. Mm. And and I think cinema has the possibility. Uh, I think cinema has the ability to absorb literature. When you think about um to use a a very lazy example, the the intertitles that Godard would use mm-hmm. or the uh the, the, the intertextuality of some of his films, mm-hmm. you know, this is him, you know, inviting literature into 
the cinematic experience mm-hmm. saying it, it it's it goes outside of but for him what he can do is he can put words on the screen mm-hmm. and he can you know sort of buck the trend of uh visually representing action through human form mm-hmm. and say i'm going to put words on the screen like an intertitle that goes back to the silent era mm-hmm. and um and use that to to make this not just a cinematic experience, but a literary one, but it's a literary one that is subsumed to the cinematic experience because it's still happening at 24 frames per second. Mm-hmm. And no matter how long the words on the screen there are, it's still a motion picture. Mm-hmm. And so it's a motion picture of words yeah. that are uh, essentially Fli- static. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, but, but they're, they're static, and yet at the same time, it's an illusion of their static, and of, of, of the ability that, that they have a stasis. And so then the words themselves take on the idea of a motion picture. Mm-hmm. And so I think cinema has had this ability. I mean, like if you went back to music, you'd have to think about like opera or something. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, I mean, most of like the, the, the philosophers of um, the 19th century or whatever, they would have said music is the, the ultimate expression of, of, yeah. of, of, of... I even say like I'm kind of with Walter Pater, like all art can do, aspires yeah, to the condition of music. Mo- mo- I, think, I think most of the philosophers of art back then did. Yeah. And... Um, and I don't know if there's something out there that, that makes the case for cinema or makes the case for literature or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think literature is always going to fall short, but I think that's part of what makes it interesting mm. is that we, 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 we vacillate between these moments in, in time where realism or, uh, ex- or abstract literature or experimental literature is what makes us reflect a little bit more earnestly mm-hmm. about our, 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 our actual lives. But the only one that has the immediacy, and maybe television has even supplanted cinema to some degree in this sense of 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 reflection i think is that visual representation hmm. that's interesting i don't know yeah i mean I, I talk about that in the review too i feel like you know movies are can let a lot of the source material down i think in some ways it's an interesting concept between like you can make a great movie out of a so-so novel right like the godfather is kind of a great example of that the godfather the novel is like not that interesting and uh, the movie, of course, is immortal, right? Double Indemnity is not that great of a book. Hang on, the I got the movie. Is hang amazing. on, hang on, hang on. Dashiell Hammett and a mob of Italians are trying to beat down the door. Let them come. <laughs> I ain't scared of the Barzini crew. All right, I roll with the Corleones. I'm scared of Dashiell Hammett though, right? <laughs> no, I found out all about him. He's like he was like a skinny guy with like bad knees who like drank all day. You got, you got, you got to. Be I worried. could take Dashiell Hammett. You, you know got to be worried about those guys. I'm telling yeah, you, Kane. Maybe he could probably take. Me. Okay, but so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's true I mean I think at least as far as I'm concerned I think you can make great movies out of bad writing and it's a lot harder to make great movies out of great writing can be done but I think generally speaking cinema steps in where sometimes literature fails have you read the Mario Puzo yeah so does Godfather part one and two hit all the marks in the Godfather does it hit the narrative in the story yeah uh, I would say no I think the movies create a whole different story based on the same characters, the same profiles of the characters, and some of the same plot stuff. But it's not very well written, and there's a lot of potential in it. it w- it's raw clay. And like maybe somebody other than Coppola could have made that, but somebody else, I think, had to come along and make that into something that was actually really worthwhile as a, as a story through film. Um, and Double Indemnity is not that great of a novel. The movie's amazing, I think. And it's part of the fact that it's cinema that fills in the blanks that those novels had, I think. 
Um, I hate it when people are like, yeah, the book's usually better than the movie. No. It's not always the case. No. Sometimes that's the case. Not all the time. Hardly ever. I, I, I I, I find more joy finding... When the the film is better than the book, absolutely. When the book is better than the movie, yeah. You know? And I mean, all the European cinema. My God, there's so many horrible books that were made into really interesting movies, um, or not even horrible, but just like not very interesting books that somebody went, "Ooh, you know, I can make something out of this." Well, the 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 novel that uh, Le Mapri Contempt is based off, right? Not a great novel, not that great, you know, right? But the movie's amazing, great film. The Conformist, not the a Conformist. bad book, incredible movie. And um, I think there's this quote that I heard once. Um, Quentin Tarantino, of course, is the only guy who's ever going to quote this stuff. Um, he said that there was a review that Pauline Kael did of some French noir movie from like the 50s. And it might have been a Nouvelle Vague movie. I don't know. But she said that it's not so much that somebody took... She, sa- she says roughly that it's not so much that the filmmakers took the source material and made a movie out of it. And it's not so much that they ignored the source material and made a movie out of that. It's more that they made a movie out of the not out of reading the source material and finding the poetry between the lines. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of putting that. It's that like okay, Quentin Tarantino said that he quoted Pauline Kael saying, "Oh, that. oh yeah, yeah." And he said that, and he said that's what I've always wanted to do. It's not so much that it's like I want to take the book and then make the book into a movie. It's that I want to take this material and then find the poetry in between the lines it's not quite what's written in the text but it's the the subtle imagery and 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 you know concepts within the between the lines that like i want to dramatize and i think there's a lot you can get out of that you know now robert de niro is always going to be in jackie brown yeah and like i mean i don't know i've never read the source material for stalker i'm sure the tarkovsky film i'm sure the book's okay but good god good luck trying to make a book out of you know like what novel would you make out of stalker right i mean it's it's well, cinema it's a cinematic experience well i mean i think i think tarkovsky is a little bit unfair i mean <laughs> that guy was yeah i mean he's he's possibly but like godard he's possible well, yeah but like you know? yeah, I, I wouldn't even put godard in the same class as tarkovsky no but i'm saying you know, like, like these... tarkovsky is probably the greatest filmmaker of all time yeah maybe maybe that, i mean you he's make that like, argument it, you could easily make that argument um the novel that Stalker is based off of, though, I think is supposed to be pretty good. I heard and it was good, yeah. And I think, I think, historically speaking, you'd have to say something like, um, it would be hard to compare what Tarkovsky was able to do to somebody that was working in France or England or uh-huh. Hollywood at the time. Right. Because he was working in the Soviet Union. And so Tarkovsky was able to make uh, uh, masterpiece after masterpiece after masterpiece. Working within the stri- uh, uh, the constrictions of the constraints of the Soviet Union, right. uh, which at the same time was not, you know, <laughs> against making beautiful cinema. Right. You know, from from the get go, the Soviet Union was always making uh, wonderful films and and films that are very very significant in terms of um, uh, cinematic history or film he- history, and and so yeah, I think it's 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 hard to it's hard to compare Tarkovsky to other people. He's kind of in a class of his own. Mm-hmm. I mean, Igmar Bergman said uh, when he saw uh, Andrei Rublev that Tarkovsky moved within this sort of space as a, as a filmmaker that Bergman could only dream you know, of, dream of yeah. you know? And, 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 and the fact that Bergman would say that, who's also probably like in, the, in, in contention for greatest filmmaker of all time, sure. you know, just, just shows the, the amount of respect that, that a filmmaker like Tarkovsky deserves and commands from, uh, from, from his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. 
And here's another thing where, I mean, I loved this book, but I wanted to make sure I had some of my criticisms of it out in the in the forefront. And this is something I think you'll appreciate. So this is me in the review um, talking about some of the other arguments that he makes. Um, Giraldi argues that politics undercuts the profound spiritual cultivation that should come from deep reading. As a longtime Harold Bloom devotee, I agree. Bullshit. Whole- yeah, right. I know. I knew you would jump in on that. That's fine. I agree wholeheartedly with the idea of deep reading as soul craft. But after years of passionately discussing this point, I have to wearily admit that that very self, so carefully and sublimely forged in literary study, is, or will eventually be, political. Which is not to say that it will be a self that waves a flag or recites some terrifying platitudes, if it's lucky enough to live in a decently functioning society, but because it will eventually have to put the book down and be around other people. Plenty of writers intend to elevate the moral conscience of their readers, and, as with religion, I would assert that social commitment can also deepen the writing. Again, these things should be judged critically on a case-by-case basis of the writer or the book. Hopefully, a self that has been enhanced by careful reading will be slightly wiser, kinder, more perceptive, humorous, and skeptical. If these traits are in place, it might, dare to dream, even possibly, make a person slightly less likely to kill or jail the people one disagrees with. And yet we have beautiful art from societies in which people are jailed for disagreeing with uh, uh, things. I mean, so like what, whether or not those are the traits or whatever that lead to that and, and whether or not... That was me speaking, by the way. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. Just to make sure we're yeah. all clear. Yeah. And, and, and so without... I don't know. It, it, it's always tough to have to have this discussion over and over again about whether or not propaganda is art or art can be propagandistic yep. or if something has a um, a political objective, does it make it lesser as, a, as an art form? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. you know. And, and, and as you say in the review, everything that exists because it exists around other people and if you know as aristotle says you know people are political animals yeah then then it's going to be politicized in some way or another yeah if a writer or an artist is lucky enough to have their shit <laughs> politicized yeah you know I mean? well it's like you can read and read and read and cultivate and that's great and that can help you be a better person i do think um it doesn't have to be the goal but it can help you get there my life i think i become a better person from having spent time deep reading but i uh Okay, well, (laughs) (laughs) that's because there's no help for you. Um, I know, I know. But it's that sense that, like, eventually you'll have to go live among other people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so, and also, I mean, there's lots of writers who wrote amazing, powerful, sublime works who were motivated very much by ideology of some kind or another, right? Dante really wants you to understand, right, like the nature of sin and salvation and grace and all these different types of... um, he uh, also Catholic really preoccupation. He also really wants you to not like the people that he dislikes. Exactly in, in Florentine yeah. society cool. or whatever. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so like, who he, am I to say? He, he was he was more of a political writer than a theological writer in a I certain think, way. Yeah. yeah. John Milton really believes that you need to understand why you know the, the ways of God and man shake out like this. Well, because the diggers and the roundheads were at it. You know. Exactly. <laughs> and, and John Milton was in no way John Milton or Dante, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Shakespeare. You name them they were all politically engaged in some form or another as people and as artists and so i agree that you shouldn't have art be didactic and i do think politics can spoil really interesting books but sometimes people actually need uh, a certain kind of ideology to spur them on to an imaginative leap like i would argue that just because 
like Dante takes like I don't care really like like Dante doesn't convince me that like th- that this is what hell is like or in, I don't you know, think he's trying to. Well, he doesn't convince me about any theology. Let's put it that way. Nor the nor does Milton. I don't believe a word of their theology, mm-hmm. but their imagination, which was inspired by theology, is really interesting. You know, it's but it's also their imagination. The politics of their day too. Sure, totally. You know, I mean, like and Milton, Milton's in. writing about the English Civil War. Yeah, and uh, Dante's writing about uh, all the the civil the sh- wars in Italy, but also the all the shitty people that you know influence politics right. and social life in right. in, in, in Northern Italy. Um, so I don't think it can be. I don't think deep reading is an essentially beyond politics or beyond ideology. But I think the critic's job is to decide whether or not X writer is being too heavy-handed or too didactic or whatever I, I that's what i think criticism is about you say no actually i think paradise lost is way too political and here's why well actually i think paradise lost isn't political at all and here's why i don't think we should say that um you know that 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 ideology is the death of art it's Ide- also possible that a lot of readers would think that something like um dante or or, or milton are very are so far removed from contemporary politics now i i happen to think that our politics often repeat what sure certain certain conflicts that have happened in the past and stuff and so it's it's never a waste of time to go back to uh those kinds of writers that were putting into the grandest terms mm-hmm. you know the uh the material conflicts of their day mm-hmm. but at the same time people might say well it's 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 not telling me what to think or it's too complicated to tell me what to think so it can't possibly be propagandistic Mm -hmm. but at the same time uh, uh, a book like um 50 shades of gray not telling us to think right not inspiring us to think is just as political as 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 something that tells us to do something Mm -hmm. and so the joyce always talk or he didn't always talk about in 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 portrait and also in Stephen hero when he's developing when Stephen himself is developing his aesthetics he talks about the arresting moment between the didactic and the pornographic yeah as that which is being art the thing that that stops a person from doing something and so uh i think that's a very conservative uh, uh estimation of what art is actually because as everybody knows i've been calling for a new brechtian moment in art these days because, <laughs> because i think it's i think it's we've gotten to the point where we have to figure out we have we have to get over this hump where the discussion is between the propagandistic and the and the aesthetic and say that the aesthetic is always propagandistic and the propagandistic always has some sort of aesthetics that accompanies it as well and that's politics so what i think is that now people that are confronting art that Certainly, we have this idea that it's supposed to be a little bit more challenging than it used to be. So, to take cinema as the popular example, the you know one of the highest grossing films from last year was Black Panther. One of the reasons for that mm-hmm. being right. is that you know uh, 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 we now think that it's more important that we spend money on representation of black people as powerful, inspiring figures mm-hmm. uh, than we did in the past. Or uh, films that are uh, about any sort of marginalized group from history, or disempowered group, or whatever. And so we are accepting some level of propaganda in popular fiction or in popular culture now more than we ever were. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that measure is, of course, a capitalist market measure, mm-hmm. you know, uh, measuring uh, Black Panther at the box office or a film like The Post, you know, which represents uh, a, a, a news matriarch, you know, making the tough decisions about... Uh, uh, what a what a newspaper decides to print or not, you know, because of a threat of 
a lawsuit or whatever, which is actually not that dramatic. <laughs> you know, well, it was Watergate. Yeah, they were like, right, if you go yeah, after Nixon, yeah. he will go after you. Yeah, but fuck Nixon, and you know, we all know how that happened, and we all know exactly where well, we are now. Well, it was because so, of the reporting yeah. that, that helped bring that right. down. Um, and so we are living in a world where some level of propaganda is almost expected mm-hmm. to accompany good art. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, is this bad for art? Because we don't live in a revolutionary society. Mm-hmm. We don't live in revolutionary times. We live in absurd times. Mm-hmm. And we are able to have cathartic experiences at the cinema or in the books we read mm-hmm. or in the news we watch or something like that. And and so we've 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 I think popular culture has gotten past the point where propaganda is an actual issue. Mm-hmm. If it's propaganda that they disagree with, they're going to take issue with it. Mm-hmm. If it's propaganda they agree with, they're not going to take issue with it. Mm-hmm. And so what the fuck are artists supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, this is kind of something I... I expect sh- an answer. I have an answer. <laughs> Ta-da! I have an answer. Um, here's how I wrap up the review, which I think has an answer. Um, the irony is that at ti- at a time... I was leading him there. I'm a professional. <laughs> um, I say is that the irony is that at a time when our screen-narrowed attention spans are shorter and ever hungrier for new stimuli, the possibilities for interesting writing are growing. More novels are being published than ever before, and literature is available in more mediums than ever before. But no writers are able to make a living. That's true, yeah. Um, but this is the goal about what what, lit- what the writer can do. It's becoming increasingly important to preserve and promote the art of literary criticism for its own sake and to sharpen our attention spans. Juicy palace intrigue is churned out daily courtesy of the badly scripted reality TV show in the White House, while the warning signs about environmental and economic catastrophe blink redder and redder by the day. As Saul Bellow once put it many years ago, there is simply too much to think about. The question facing our literary culture becomes less about where our next generation of great writers will come from and what they will have to say, but who will still be able to sit still long enough to read them. Demanding that people pay attention to quality is about as audacious a demand as you can make in our giddy culture, flush with the sugar high of constant simulation. But it doesn't have to be. Spending some serious time with Giraldi's collection of alluring literary audacities might be an invigorating way to start your year in reading off right. So the answer is, is that we, we, we hone our... The answer is, is you're a moralistic bastard, is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like... Pay attention. Sharpen <laughs> your attention span. Read right. Read the right books. And read the right <laughs> books. Don't read crap books would be my answer. Right? And the crap books are the ones that grab you by the shoulder and keep you listening. And I think that, you know, a collection of things on literary audacity is a really great way to um, begin that process. You don't have to agree with it, but you should be uh, engaged enough to be thinking critically about it and enjoying what it has to offer you and, you know, having it change the, the perspective on your world ever so slightly um, and to therefore be a little more alive.
Speaking of being alive. <laughs> uh, why speak of anything else? I don't think I've ever talked about a piece that I've written on the podcast before. Because I like to be ecumenical. And, uh, and scrupulous. And, <laughs> and scrupulous. But uh, I do have a recent piece up. It just came out. It's co- uh, about some of these really short films that are that are produced by uh, uh, Josh or produced by Laura Poitras. I think I don't know how to say her name. How do you say her name? I don't know. Poitras. I think I don't know. I, I knew I, a Poitras. I think, once. I think it's I think like that's how you I say think it. it's like South African or something. I don't know. Um, but I don't know. Uh, people will probably remember her as being uh, the filmmaker for Citizen Four, which is the Edward Snowden film that comes out uh, after the Glenn Greenwald reporting through the guardian about the nsa leaker edward snowden mm-hmm. and she now makes films through a thing called uh field of vision okay which is i believe a division of first look media which is also the parent company for the intercept and so a lot of these short films you can see on the intercept and i happen to have recently written about or not recently last year i also wrote about wallace Shawn's play that was turned into a radio play that was produced uh, b- through the Intercept on uh, uh, Jeremy Scahill's podcast, and I said it's a play that everybody should see or at least listen to. And I'm glad there's op- the opportunity for people to listen to it because it's one of those plays where it does not offer you a solution, but it recognizes that everybody that listens to it lives in a society that is complicit in something that is evil, and we should do something mm-hmm. about that. Right. And I don't think a lot of people go to the theater to feel that way. I don't think a lot of people watch TV to feel that way. I don't think people like going to work and feeling that way. Uh, fellow podcaster and leftist uh, Terrence Ray from Trillbilly Workers Party was recently fired from his job in a nonprofit, I think, for writing an essay at Popular Magazine, P-O-P-U-L-A, uh, about the bullshit of working in the nonprofit agency. Mm. So, like, obviously, if you try to attack power... Like there are repercussions, you mm-hmm. know, and so mm-hmm. it's important that we that we continue to, I think, recognize and acknowledge artwork that is attacking power and not just through the accepted means, not just through what's popular, not just through what this particular season of the Emmys or the Golden Globes or the Oscars thinks is important because it's 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 important for us, I think, to recognize that the popular mediums through which and the popular ways that we represent excellence or acknowledge excellence in art are never going to be truly reflective of the political backlash. Mm -hmm. They're always going to be reflective of what's politically appropriate and acceptable to power. And so the film that I, that I focus on is a short film called best of luck with the wall which is by Josh Begley. He's a data artist and a Columbia Law School teacher and a reporter for The Intercept. And what it does is it um, shows in very rapid succession about 200,000 Google Maps uh, image captures of the U.S.-Mexico border. Mm -hmm. And it shows just in... It takes about six minutes to watch this short film. It shows in that six minutes just how ridiculous the idea of an actual border wall is. Mm-hmm. It's an impossible feat for for anybody to undertake, for any government to undertake. 
even more impossible than goddamn fucking monorails in every city you know like the simpsons version of you know saving every economy through monorails is more realistic Mm -hmm. than than donald trump's idea that he can build a border wall and protect america and all that kind of stuff but donald trump is trying to keep a campaign promise so we should applaud him for that (laughs) so (laughs) good for him it's very it's very uh, hard to keep campaign promises and very few people actually try to do that and he is trying to do that so at least uh, he's got a shred of integrity, even though it's based in well, uh, it's zen- based in nothing xenophobia, but opportunism, really. uh, xenophobia, evil, and um, uh, I'm sure whoever's going to build the wall, if they ever do build the wall, which they won't, uh, will make a shitload of money, and Donald Trump might get some of that too. So this is my review of Josh Begley's films uh, that are being published on the Intercept, uh, primarily focusing on Best of Luck with the Wall. I really like maps. Old maps, new maps, real and fake. As a kid, I used to hold in equal reverence my father's huge atlas, turning the pages in the meticulous, careful way he taught me, and the fictional maps of Middle-earth and Narnia that inspired imaginative adventures. As I grew older, I I grew to love how maps project possibilities, especially for politics and history. Naturally, I spend a lot of time on Google Maps, exploring places I've been before or places I hope to visit. I trace routes through as many parts of the world as I can, getting a rush every time I pluck that little orange avatar and drop him from a million miles up down into extraordinary sites of historical import with the desolate crossroads of the small Oklahoma town my grandmother was from. Still, it's important not to fool ourselves about limits of the reality that a map suggests. Maps are distortions, essentially abstractions that reflect the shifting contours of history data artist and Columbia Law School teacher Josh Begley draws on Google Maps as a means to disturb settled assumptions in his beautiful, often haunting and mesmerizing films. He distances us from the concrete to provoke unsettling political questions. One of his films, Best of Luck with a Wall, uses 200,000 satellite images from Google Maps in order to examine the entire Mexico-U.S. border in about six minutes. In those six minutes and 200,000 images, Begley shows us just how ludicrous the state of our politics is. For a man who lacks any shred of integrity, Trump appears to be sticking to his campaign's dumbest promise, to build a wall along the United States' southern border with Mexico. That commitment, no matter how absurd, is unusual in politics, especially for the Democrats. The wall, no matter how unreal, signifies multiple political realities with real human consequences. Trump and the Democrats have shut down the government over it, building a barrier between thousands of federal employees and their paychecks, and potentially keeping many thousands more from receiving food stamps and other benefits. A wall stands between hundreds of Americans and their next meal so that Chuck and Nancy can flex their political muscle in the world's dumbest pissing contest. The presence of U.S. troops on the southern border, violently attacking migrants, reflects the ideology behind the wall, as does Trump's immigration reforms, which bar people from certain countries from entering the U.S. Then, of course, there is the border itself, an imaginary line that cuts across very real geography. Begley, in a mere six minutes, demonstrates how impossible the notion of a border wall is from an engineering and construction perspective. The film races through all 1,954 miles of the border, a kaleidoscopic, hallucinatory journey where any notion of north, south, east, or west loses its meaning. 
Borders begin as fictions, Begley reminds us, but they are made real by the policies built around them. Accidents of history alter the contours of a nation, which then shape the fate of countless lives. By overwhelming viewers with data, proving the border's immensity, Begley discards any sense of the wall as a metaphor. He succeeds in his illuminating intention to insist on that geography. Anyone who crosses that border, whether they are among the nearly one million people who cross every day through official points of entry and exit, or those who do so in desperation, fleeing violence and oppression, or in search of hope, cannot afford the luxury of treating the border as a chip in a rigged game of ideological poker. Begley has made a number of films that push through abstraction in order to reach the human. He works with Laura Poitras's Field Division Production Company and has a partnership with The Intercept Publication. Concussion Protocol presents every instance of a concussion during an NFL season. We see the plays run backwards in time, beginning from the moment of impact. Begley's goal is to imply how things might have gone differently, but time doesn't work like that. This film, along with Officer Involved 2017, share the same strategy, to see everything that had to happen in order for a certain action to take place. Officer Involved 2017 uses Google Maps to locate the scenes of each of the more than 1,000 police killings in 2017. Begley takes three images from each location, two looking around the scene of the shooting and one, looks, one that looks up to the sky, quite possibly the last thing some of the shooting victims saw. The visual results in a triptych of police brutality. Every frame is taken from one of these sites of violence. Many of them, as we know, involve the deaths of young black men, men who, like the mostly black men in concussion protocol, are innocent, only to be injured for someone else's profit or pleasure. Best of Luck with the Wall is not cathartic. It is confrontational. A direct address to you, the viewer, to navigate a map that is a dizzying paradox. It is both fixed and expansive. The film and the border don't so much as end as just flow off, float off into the Gulf of Mexico, suggesting a boundlessness, a bewildering lack of specificity of place. Begsley's series of short films reinforces the vital message of The Intercept. From its incisive reporting to its production of creative content, it is the need for a compass, even if it shows us how lost we have become.
Yeah. 